Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics brought to you by swan.com. Have you wondered about new and visual ways of appealing to people about Bitcoin? Well, Anil Patel joins me on the show to talk about the Bitcoin Handbook, which is his new visual and simplified explainer of Bitcoin concepts on how to meet people where they are. Are you a high net worth investor? Consider swanprivate.com. With Swan Private, you get a trusted partner on your Bitcoin journey. That can mean a person who you can pick up the phone and call, you can email. This is your dedicated Bitcoin expert who is going to help you, guide you down that pathway and give you tips and advice on things like self-custody or perhaps help you with advanced strategies such as tax loss harvesting. And with Swan Private, you get access to exclusive events. So for example, there's Swan Salon, which is a monthly rotating event, which you can get access to. Also, if you're with Swan Private, you have support for retirement, trust, and corporate accounts. And Swan Private customers also get original Bitcoin and investment research. There's Swan Private Insight, which is a great monthly publication with original research and content going out for Swan Private customers. So if you're a high net worth investor considering Bitcoin, go to swanprivate.com. When it comes to sending Bitcoin transactions, mempool.space is the block explorer to use. Bitcoin is a multi-layer ecosystem and mempool.space can show you the multiple layers and aspects of this ecosystem, whether that is the mempool, the transactions that are yet to be mined into a block, or it can show you the blockchain and show you past blocks or projected future blocks. You can see second layer networks like the Lightning Network. And with mempool.space, you don't have to trust a third party. It's free and open source software that you can host yourself. Now, if you're with an enterprise, mempool.space has custom mempool instances. You can get your company's branding. You can get increased API limits and so much more over at mempool.space space slash enterprise. Now, as we say in Bitcoin, not your keys, not your coins. With CoinKite.com, you can get some hardware that will help you secure your coins in a range of setups and security levels. So for those of you who are looking to use your first hardware device, the cold card is a great example there. You can use it easily and directly plug it into the computer. You can use it with software such as Spectre Desktop or Sparrow or Electrum, or even Nunchuck on the phone. So there's all kinds of options there. Coldcard makes it easy for you to learn about it if you just directly plug it into the computer. You can spin up your new wallet by writing down the 12 or 24 words and the pin codes. And of course, don't forget to get a metal seed backup product. So CoinKite have the seed plate, which you can use. And there is a puncher that you get to punch in the 12 or 24 words. And this is what you can use to have as your backup in case your home goes up on fire or things like this, then you have redundancy and security there. So go to coincard.com, use code Lavera for a discount on your cold cards. And now onto the show. Anil, welcome to the show. Stefan, thanks for having me. Really excited to chat. Yeah, I'm a fan of your work. You've been doing some great stuff in terms of helping simplify Bitcoin concepts. And the challenge for people is Bitcoin is a very complex thing and there's all these different ways you could look at it. There's different fields that you might need to go and do some research. I mean, it's not that you need to be the master of all of these things and some amazing polymath, but you might need to do a little bit of work on all these different areas to grasp what's going on here. So do you want to just tell us a little bit for people who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, a little bit of your journey into doing what you're doing? Absolutely. So I, like many Bitcoiners, was pretty much just completely absorbed into it um, the more I understood it and could appreciate 
what it could actually do for me, for my family, for my community. And I don't come from a technical background, so I really didn't know how I could contribute to this space. The gap I guess I saw was really around helping other non-technical people understand what Bitcoin is. And Bitcoin is many things, as you pointed out. So how do we build assets or almost like an arsenal of content that Bitcoiners could use when helping to educate their friends and family who maybe are coming from almost zero uh, understanding of what Bitcoin is or maybe having never even heard of it. So I just started a side of the desk as a hobby, creating little visuals, infographics, wrote, you know, uh, started writing a newsletter. And over time, uh, you know, you refine your messaging a little bit and you see what hits. And I just kept doubling down. And, you know, now I'm really happy to be in a place where uh, the community's kind of accepted uh, my work and there's a huge amount of support that I've gotten and I'm really grateful for. And uh, here we are. Fantastic. And I think it's important to point out that in the earlier years, there just wasn't a lot of high quality information. And even if there was, it wasn't the popular information. I think some of the ideas like Austrian economics and things like this, yes, they were around and there were people talking about them, people like, let's say, Tour de Mista or Peter Serta or Conrad Graf. At least at the time I was coming in, they were some of the people who were writing and speaking from an Austrian perspective. And of course, my friends, Pierre Rashad and Michael Goldstein. Uh, and it was only later that we started to see people find new ways to sort of crunch it down, simplify it, put it into simple terms. And like you said, I think it comes from having a lot of practice. Um, a good example is Jan Pritzker when he made Inventing Bitcoin. That was actually the result of him teaching a lot of high school students over and over and over, here's how you learn about Bitcoin. And then he just found certain analogies that used to work. So what's that process been like for you, finding what works? How do you skillfully convey the basic concept? Yeah, you've you absolutely nailed it. And, you know, just to point out, very little of what I produce is my original ideas. You know, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, many of which you just mentioned, which were instrumental in my own journey, um, including yourself. You know, I, I kind of ran into that brick wall by sending friends, uh, you know, fairly well-educated friends with a, with a financial background or economic background. Uh, you know, I might send them a podcast of yours, maybe talking to Tur or to Pierre um, from five years ago. And uh, it, it just wouldn't, wouldn't connect with them, even though it was incredibly uh, high signal content. It's just in their maybe normie lifestyle or world, there, there isn't really that inclination or the uh, space in their calendar to kind of sit down and make an effort to grasp something like. That. So, yeah, how, how do you then take something like an hour worth of, uh, you know, content and condense it down into maybe just one or two images that someone glancing, you know, scrolling through their phone might stop and it might force them to, to reconsider something they believed before. So it, it, it was really just a process of first curating what, what's already out there. You know, we already have a fantastic canon of, of interviews, of uh, books. Uh, and, you know, how do we curate that maybe for that kind of top of the funnel group as they're just starting to, to dip their toe into into this field. So yeah, it, 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 it's definitely an iterative process. Um, there's, there's already a huge amount of incredible um, knowledge and work and content out there on the topic. It's uh, how do you help someone find what they need at that particular point in time on their journey? 
Yeah, I think that's an important point also. It's it's selecting the right tool for the job because you could be talking to a person in the Western world who maybe this is already a high net worth individual and maybe they already have access to US bank accounts or you know, you know know high level bank accounts and things like this. So you could be talking to somebody who is maybe uh, just an average everyday, you know, Joe from the street, you know, Joe Sixpack or someone like that. And you, you, you sort of have to find the right message that might resonate with them. Um, and at the same time, people talk about, as an example, coming from first principles. So do you want to just elaborate a little bit on that idea of first principles and why you have to use that approach? It, yeah, it's, it's very easy to get swept up in the, the uh, world of hype and price prediction. And uh, that might help maybe bring you in initially to, to understanding, say, sound money, but it won't keep you there. Uh, you'll probably get burnt, have some pretty bad experiences. So maybe you're better off served understanding these kind of fundamental frameworks, rules, laws, which are generally correct over time. And I mean that through we could survey history and see what were the incentives in a particular situation uh, and what was the outcome. And not that that's necessarily inferring what happened, but if we can pattern, you know, use some pattern recognition, then we can kind of arrive at these, you know, frameworks and rules that are just helpful to understanding not just Bitcoin, but the wider world. Um, so, you know, I tried to put together this book for myself, really. I, I really just wrote it for myself. This is the book I wish had existed when I first started learning about Bitcoin. And it's a reference style book that you can kind of just keep jumping back to and, and flipping through, you know. Um, I don't have an encyclopedic, you know, mind. I don't have a photographic memory. I kind of just need it, uh, something within grasp to, to pick up, flick through. Oh, yeah, that's right. This is reminiscent of this particular framework or this particular concept might apply to this situation. And when looking at it through that lens, I have a rough idea of what the incentives are and what might uh, happen or what's most likely to happen. So it's just it just helpful for, for sort of planning your future, basically. When it comes to money, people say people have this idea, and maybe this is a Bitstein tweet I'm uh, repeating here, but it's something like, whoever can print money will. And I think that's an interesting tweet-sized motif or idea that maybe helps motivate the point of Bitcoin, doesn't it? Yeah, and he's really a master of, of you know, memeing these absolutely massive uh, ideas into, you know, tweet form. Um, and yeah, it's it's an incredibly powerful way to do it because it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. If you can just get someone to stop, you know, they don't have to um, suddenly be uh, encouraged to go down the rabbit hole, but can they just stop what they're doing? Does it Does it cause them to pause in their thought and kind of break something in the model that they hold of the world? And most people just do not understand money at a very basic level. They've never stopped, had that moment um, and had to reflect on, okay, why is this what I'm using to exchange value with other people? Um, so, you know, yeah, he's someone I really uh, admire for, for what he does and some of the earlier pieces he wrote. Um, so, yeah, I really hope to do something similar, but just visually, I suppose. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and as you um, write about in your book, or you have graphs and things like this, you talk about this idea of scarcity and monetary premium. So, how do you bring that up? Like, let's say you're, you know, you're talking to somebody uh, and maybe casually sort of Bitcoin comes up and maybe, you know, we're following the advice of Matt O'Dell, we're shilling lightly, we're not sort of being over, over the top with people, but you sort of see an opportunity where maybe you could bring something up and it maybe it gives you an opportunity to introduce the concept in a socially savvy way. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the the most common one for me at the moment. So I'm currently based in Canada. Um, we're both Aussies. Yeah. Something that's in common with those two countries for our generation has been the topic around housing affordability. Yeah. Now everyone has an opinion as to how to fix it. Um, whether that's you know misguided or actually you know perhaps useful in the short term, very few people are willing to go back, you know, take the symptoms as a snapshot and try to figure out the root cause. So, without even mentioning the B word, when that topic of conversation comes up, it's it's a very easy opportunity to introduce the concept of scarcity of money because very few people who maybe are concerned about housing will have any idea of the trajectory of the money supply during the same, you know, period of housing appreciation. Um, and if they can kind of maybe connect those two dots, then they can sort of begin to even explore the concept of, uh, you know, monetary premiums and how they nest into those financial assets, as you know, Preston Pish likes to say. Um, so it's kind of this step-by-step process. Uh, I kind of use something, I'd like to call it the Bitcoin marketing funnel. And that's, you know, a normie will look out into their world. They will see issues. They know something is wrong. They cannot put their finger on it. They're looking at these symptoms. And if they can be curious enough to kind of look for uh, the root cause of that, they may then, you know, be very interested in inflation because that's kind of explaining that price appreciation. Well, then they'll look into the factors that go into how we calculate inflation. They might have some issues with how that's done if they're a fairly um, critical thinker. And then, you know, from there, they look at, well, okay, what is money? So everyone kind of has that different um, staircase that they they climb to get to the point. But, uh, you know, it's, it's almost unavoidable in this day and age, given where we are in the cycle of the monetary systems around the world. So it, it, I think our job's getting easier and easier as the fiat monetary system does a poorer and poorer job. Right. I think in some ways people stumble towards the truth, right? So that even if you can point out, oh, look, there's this system that it solves this problem, it, it, sort of, it takes time for people to realize that. And as you point out, rightly so, Australia and Canada have some of the worst property bubbles on earth. I think maybe Hong Kong might be the, the worst, but I think Australia and Canada are definitely up there. And there's big conversations going on, I think, in both countries about housing affordability. People are talking about things like oh, well, you know, the birth rate is going down in these countries, but we'll just fix it with immigration. But then now the conversation is coming and saying, well, actually, even if immigrants come here and yes, they can earn more in Australia or Canada versus, let's say, Sri Lanka or India or something. But then even with that highest salary in Australia or Canada, they still can't afford to own a place near to where their work is in that you know, newer country. And so, it's, it's, a, it's a big conversation and we see a lot of people having that. I think it also comes into, you know, speaking of things like scarcity, people talk about the supply of new housing, right? Because there's, you know, as, as I'm sure you have conversations with people about this, people talk about how they're blocking development or how they need to develop more properties and apartments. But then you also get that conversation about how some people are to the same question around monetary premium. You get this question about people who are using apartments, high value apartments as a store of value. They just buy the apartment because they want to get the money out of China or whatever other country and they don't even live in it, right? 
Yeah, we actually hear the term. I, I hadn't heard it till I moved here, but for, um, I guess waterfront condo properties here that you largely sit vacant, they're called safety deposit boxes in the sky. That's just the term that's used here, which I think perfectly <laughs> captures what's going on, right? Um, but yeah. the overall, I guess the higher point to all of this is we're touching on a pain point. There's something going on in people's lives that is upsetting them. It's, it's not what they've been told. Um, and they're having that moment of something is wrong. Um, um, someone's taking advantage of me, perhaps. And, you know, am I willing to do the work, to figure out what's going on here? So, you know, it's, it's sort of an individual journey. Yeah. So then I think the question is, how do you get them to come with you on that journey? And of course, I'm sure, you know, as I've had, there have been so many times where I try to bring someone along and, you know, you just find, okay, they're not really willing to go with you. So you kind of have to focus your effort on the people who are willing to listen or at least trying to at least are open-minded to exploring what is this idea of like what makes a better money. Yeah. Look, you've had, you'd be the master at this. You've had thousands of conversation about this exact topic, right? So I should, I should be asking you this question. Um, I guess my own belief now where I'm at is um, completely agree with you. You, you can't force someone down the rabbit hole and your time is probably better spent uh, guiding people who are already open-minded, have maybe lowered their ego enough to be willing to look at other options and admit they were maybe wrong about some of the beliefs they had. Um, So, yeah, you, there's no point using your energy when others are more willing to kind of come with you on that journey. It's less of a battle. And the, the most frustrating thing for me is, um, so I went to business school for uh, my undergrad and did an MBA. So I was kind of in that, um, I, I guess, fiat business school. The yuppie elite kind of world. Yes, yeah. exactly. And that's exactly what I was going to reference is Jesse's article um, that that particular group, uh, they've spent so much time and effort and sweat climbing this particular ladder that to get them to climb back down it and up a different ladder is just asking so much of them. So I get why they would be one of the most hesitant groups to do that. And that's the big battle I had because just a lot of my friends by default happen to come from that world. And they're lovely people. They, they mean well, they're doing well. They just maybe had the wrong guide at a certain point in their life um, that took them in that direction. So now I really focus a lot of my time and energy on especially younger people. You know, you look at a, a 15 year old and how they interact digitally they're never going to accept a kind of closed proprietary system when an alternative option exists where they can transact frictionlessly with their friends. Um, and, you know, they're very skeptical of what's kind of coming down the pipeline. So, yeah, I, I would I would encourage people listening to, to focus their time and energy on younger digitally native um, people and those who are already maybe open to the idea of, of going down the rabbit hole. Um, and they're just looking for you to maybe hold their hand. Yeah, and I'm with you on the idea of focusing on the younger generations. I think we do need to do that, um, whether that is writing books that young people can read or even TV shows. I know the Tuttle Twins recently did one about Bitcoin, so that's a great example. But you know what? Even there, there are problems too, right? Because a lot of younger people, they might be stuck on, let's say, TikTok. And, you know, that's not an open network. That's just like a proprietary, you know. So there's still people who are stuck. But nevertheless, I think that is the pathway that we have to go down and we have to be willing to sort of play that longer game of focus, like firstly having lots of our own children and also helping put out educational material that is viable for them also, whether it's video content or books or whatever, because fundamentally that's who we need to get, right? Like uh, as wealth passes down, as, you know, older generations of society passed 
you know passed away they pass their wealth down to younger generations guess what like it's it's if you folk if you're focused on winning with those younger generations you're going to win in the long run so that's sort of how i'm seeing it um i but the the i guess the challenge that i see is as well is we're living in this attention economy where it's you have to sort of be able to seize people's attention at the same time and uh people have such short attention spans that uh you know, listening to a one-hour podcast is uh, maybe a big ask, or reading a big book is is a big ask for somebody. Um, but that's also where I, I see some value in 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 your book as well, the Bitcoin Handbook, because it's it's sort of a quick page turner sort of thing. Like you could give it as a gift. It might be sitting on somebody's coffee table as an example, and then you know maybe a visitor comes by and they just kind of pick it up and they start flicking through, and maybe they see a few ideas. Oh, okay. This is the scarcity. This is monetary premium. Oh, that's Cantillon effect. What's what's this, right? Yeah. What was I just about to say? You, you touched on something really interesting. Uh, I think, yeah, sorry, the, the in- inherited wealth piece of, of wealth being passed down from generation to generation and someone who may not want to listen to a one-hour podcast, but those that do will be, you know, rewarded uh, in an outsized manner. And that's kind of the, the, the system we're living in now where uh, a huge amount of wealth gets passed down and is inherited where now we're existing during the birth of this new monetary system where the only people who will be rewarded have to take some kind of risk, have to listen to that one hour, have to read that book because they need to build conviction to then act on that um, and sort of, you know, perhaps nominate their saving in in that new monetary asset. So it's, I think it's beautiful in the sense that, you know, it's proof of work. Those are the people who will hopefully be better off in the future are those that, you know, are willing to take the time to really think through things in, in a first principles manner. And, you know, I see a future that doesn't have as much malinvestment, you know, doesn't benefit insiders. All, all kind of these political talking points that we hear so often, you know, Bitcoin really can deliver. Um, so I'm, I'm really hopeful. I'm really, really hopeful. But you're you're in Dubai. You see a huge amount of wealth on display and getting passed around. You know, what's, what's your view on it? So I think... A lot of people got, well, kind of going back to the events of last year with, you know, the multiple failures of quote-unquote crypto, right? FTX, BlockFi, Voyager, you know, Three Arrows Capital, Terra Luna, etc. I mean, I probably, that's probably only half of the failures that happened last year. But um, I think some people got burned on those, sadly. Not Obviously not people in the hardcore kind of Bitcoiner crew, obviously, where, you know, my, my closer circle of hardcore Bitcoiner people, you know, we're all self-custody maxis type of people but let's say one or two layers out the people who are into quote-unquote crypto i think there's a bunch of them who got wrecked unfortunately on uh, the likes of ftx um and you know sometimes rectification i think someone made that someone made up that term and i think that's that's an important one for some people it's sad but maybe that's um what it takes for some people to learn and i think because a lot of people are stuck in a gambling mindset or stuck in this kind of i need to just chase some yield i just need to get something otherwise you know i'm just going to get wrecked or i'm going to fall behind whether that's falling behind on inflation or maybe they don't want to fall behind versus their peers maybe their peers are, are getting richer than them and it's keeping up with the joneses maybe there's a little bit of that i think it, yeah it's all of these things um it's a slow process right you have to sort of think about okay what makes a better money and i also think this whole idea of insiders right i think the Cantillon effect that's something that uh, i think bitcoiners have helped popularized that idea and i think that idea was not well understood out obviously outside of the austrian circles like the austro-libertarian circles of course they knew what the cantillon effect was but the average person 
uh, had basically no idea what that was. Um, so I'm curious how you, uh, do you end up, do you ever end up having to explain that for people? And what's your approach? Like if somebody says to you, oh, hey, you know, what's this Cantillon effect? Why should I care about it? Yeah, I mean, it just the idea that let's just talk about, you know, banking for a sec- second and the idea that when you take out a mortgage, a bank is lending money into existence that breaks a lot of people's mind. Um, if they really think about it, that you're increasing the supply of money and that's going to have an impact on other things around you in a complex adapt. So, you know, not to always go back to housing, but I find that's the thing people are most obsessed with where I live and mortgages. Uh, it, that's just a really interesting topic, you know, because if you think about it. Someone asked me um, quite recently, uh, what do you think will happen to the house? Just in a general, you know, question. And um, their their view was that things will continue to appreciate. And I just asked them, okay, what would happen if banks weren't willing to lend you money? The banks weren't willing to extend credit to you. What do you think would happen? And they just never considered that question. Um, they couldn't. They couldn't even comprehend a world where that was the case, which it is for many parts of the world today. But if you're in that bubble, um, or you see someone who's inside that bubble, and you can pose a question that gives them that moment um, that breaks their brain a little. I mean, yeah, that just sends them on a completely new journey. Um, and the Kantian effect is a great example because people see um, wealthy, non-productive people getting continually wealthy, disproportionate to, to everyone else. And, um, you know, if you're willing to stop and ask, why is that? Not how do you feel about that, but why is that? The, what's the actual mechanism that allows that to happen? Um, you know, they're, they're usually going to say, well, it's corruption. Okay, well, how does corruption actually function in that situation? Um, and the idea of, you know, a, a money faucet and that people being close to that would benefit, that that makes sense in a lot of people's mind. If they understand that money is created centrally in this fiat world we live in, then obviously people closer in proximity to where money is created and how it is allocated into an economy in an expansionary period, um, those people are going to, you know, have information asymmetry. They're going to be able to um, bid up scarce assets. Um, so, yeah, if you could just slowly walk through a process like that with people in in words they can understand you know i when i first started learning about bitcoin i felt like an idiot i still do most days and part of that is because uh i need things explained in a very simple way for it to stick and so when i talk to other people uh who are you know pre-coiners no coiners uh be really conscious don't use words that they've never heard before you know if they're complaining about um the price of assets and you say oh well kantian effect that that doesn't mean anything to them you know they almost put up a wall because they see you almost as like that academic elite that we may be real against. So yeah, talk to people in their own terms uh, and try to just think through it visually yourself and how you would explain it to someone else. Um, so metaphors are really powerful. The concept of a tap literally pouring money. You know, people can see that. They can understand that. And, and that really makes it stick. You don't even have to use the word Kantian. Sorry, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a fantastic way to put it. And um, something I've occasionally found success with is... Uh, you may have heard, it's like a funny little uh, short way of putting it, but people say, oh, that money in the bank, firstly, it's not yours, it's not there, and thirdly, it's not money. And I think that can sometimes, like, certain ideas like that can sort of push people, and then they can be like, wait a minute, what, like, it's not my, it's not there, it's not my, what, what do you mean? Like, and then you have to, then you're able to sort of explain, wait a second, if, if you, if you, if everybody, if every customer of your bank went to the bank to try to take their money out, it wouldn't all be there. And then you can start to sort of go down that track of, oh, wait a sec, what? I thought my money was, you know, they thought their money in the bank was theirs, right? Unfortunately, it's a difficult concept for people to grasp because the effect is at a net aggregate level, right? So when that bank issues that credit, he, when the banker issues that loan, let's say I'm the banker and I give you that loan, 
you are now running around thinking, let's say it's a $100,000 loan, whatever, just to keep the number simple. You are now running around with $100,000 that you think you're able to buy stuff with, which you are. Obviously, you've, you've received this $100,000 into your bank account. But there's someone else running out around out there who has his money and he thinks it's immediately callable or accessible for him too. So two people are running around thinking sort of with a claim when there's really not that much money to go around per se. And so that's where the confusion is. And that's where this extra money is being created, ex nihilo, right, as we say. And so that's where the Cantillon effect occurs, right? Because you got issued that new credit. You're able to now go become a property speculator or whatever you're going to do with that loan. And everyone else in the economy has been diluted. And especially the people who lose the most are the savers, people who were saving in fiat currency. And I think that's a cultural aspect as well, because, you know, you talk to people and sometimes they're stuck in a mindset of just, oh, how many dollars do I have? Or how many, whatever their fiat currency is, I just need to stack more of that. Or they just think the only way to save is with, say, property, right? They, they don't, it doesn't enter into their mind of, oh, I could save with Bitcoin or I could, you know, do something else rather than just trying to get a property. Yeah, and that's it. I mean, I, everyone understands the concept of saving. They just think of different vehicles as what is the piggy bank of the moment. And that's, you know, property is the example right now. That's usually something that's been passed down to previous generation. Um, and when that mindset exists, uh, it's usually not going to continue. If a previous generation saved in a particular asset, then them passing down the knowledge to the current generation to do the same rarely works out if you kind of look back through, you know, modern history. And what's really upsetting, I think, for a lot of people, especially, you know, Bitcoin as sound money advocates, is right now we're seeing this demonization of saving when, you know, saving savings is basically just saying that you're not spending everything that you earn. So you create value in the world, you are rewarded or compensated, and you choose not to immediately spend everything you receive. The difference of that is your saving. That allows you to delay gratification, and that allows you to make uh, investment, for which you bear the risk. No one's, you know, no one's bailing you out on that on a personal level, but that allows you to invest. So the idea that someone who has that mindset is being, uh, you know, looked at as a source of the problem of, you know, the current financial system is just really evil. That's uh, a very just dangerous angle and turn that we kind of seeing play out right now. Uh, and I, for a period of time, work in a uh, business school in admissions, and you see how uh, applicants and students look at their student debt, how they think about it. And again, it kind of goes back to what we we're talking about with uh, banks and mortgages. Would houses be worth so much if banks weren't lending, sending credit um, for purchases? And the same thing exists in academia. You know, if the government wasn't willing to underwrite certain loans um, to allow individuals to borrow from banks at very favorable rates, um, would education be as expensive as it is in the you know traditional system? Um, and you know, you run into the same same line of questioning. Well, probably not. You know, could the average person save up fifty, a hundred? to go to business school? Probably not. So then what would happen? Okay, demand drops. If universities are serious, they, they're going to have to lower their prices to kind of meet, you know, where supply and demand intersect. Um, and yeah, it's just, uh, uh, it's, it's sad, really. It's sad, really, how few people uh, understand the concept of saving, you know, everything's yeah. debt. So let's hit this topic. I think this is an interesting one for people. Why is it the case that people should not be looking at property as their piggy bank in the sky, as their safe deposit box. I think as an example, a lot of people, they, and I'm sure you've seen this in Australia, you know, back when I was there, I'm not there anymore, obviously, but when I was there, I remember I would go to, bar, you know, barbecues or parties and people, it was, it was the topic du jour, right? It was, oh, 
I bought this property here. I got a two-bed apartment there and whatever. I bought it for this much and now it's worth this much. There'd be no consideration of inflation, firstly, right? So the real term, the real price of that property or the real gains that they experienced, there'd be very little discussion about the interest expenses they were paying, the maintenance. And, uh, you know, sometimes you'd get people to appreciate that sometimes these properties can just be a money hole, right? It's just like a money pit that they're throwing all this effort in re- repairs and maintenance because something breaks or the council needs this or the the HOA is saying you need to fix this other thing because the apartment broke and you're trying to you're trying to fix it up and there's all of these little hidden costs that people don't appreciate for example the transaction costs that you pay when you are regularly turning over houses I think that's another one a lot of people forget um, there might be a stamp duty or some kind of land tax that you're paying there's all these little hidden costs that people are just completely neglecting or Maybe they're, if they're more savvy, maybe they sort of understand, but they're, they're sort of gambling on enough price appreciation to account for or deal with all of that. Um, and so it just becomes this situation where people haven't really thought through the broader costs of it and they don't understand why property should not be the piggy bank. Yeah. I mean, the fundamental level, you kind of talked about, you know, at a barbecue, people at a barbecue, and they're not having an honest conversation about their financial situation, that they're playing status game. They're saying, you know, I made this particular bet. I'm very smart. It's going to pay off well. And with property, anyone can take a very highly leveraged bet on the direction of the real estate market, thanks to the fiat system and everyone having the same uh, interest rate, basically price that they have to pay, um, which is insane. In no world should you, I, and five other people have exactly the same interest rate with uh, someone lending money because we all pose different levels of risk to that institution. But real estate allows uh, people to do that. They're all in the same playing field. Um, so I just see it as like a, a very much a status game. And it's I, I understand it. Because being outside of that circle at the barbecue is incredibly lonely. Um, as someone who is at those barbecues very frequently, and the topic of conversation is always that one thing, real estate. And you can sub that in for other um, markets in different parts of the world, depending on what is the you know asset of the day. It's, it's incredibly lonely, and you're only able to tolerate that if you have a lot of conviction in what's actually going on. To listen to those conversations, to not get highly reactive, and you're kind of incredibly good at that. And I think that's why a lot of people listen to you is because you deliver messages in very calm ways where the average person would get quite worked up about some. And if you get very worked up and emotional, <laughs> oh, you, yeah. people just glaze over. They shut down. They take a step back. Um, you know, you're, you're a threat to them, basically. So, yeah, it's it's unfortunate, but I, I get it from a social perspective. You don't want to be left out. You see all your friends taking a particular action. Um, you're probably going to copy them. Because then you're talking about the same things. You know, you have you have a huge number of things in common immediately. And that's kind of generally what you want to be accepted into a group. Um, if all your friends have big mortgages, homes, and they're talking about renos, they're talking about interest rates, and you're there saving in Bitcoin, you're renting, um, it's you, you look like a crazy person, you know, to, to convince that entire group who have made this life-changing decision, who've put probably all their savings into a deposit and now highly levered long the direction of the real estate market, to get them to change their opinion on how best to preserve their purchasing power is a very tall ask. So in those situations now, I kind of just, you know, shut my mouth. I don't wish any pain on people, um, but it's I'm able to do that because I have other Bitcoiners I can talk to 
and, you know, uses points of reference to say, hey, wait, am I the crazy one in this situation? Um, but it's, yeah, it's a willingness to be lonely in, in your perspective. Yeah, I will say um, it's funny that uh, if you're a long-term hodler and stacker of Bitcoin, you basically spend three years looking like an idiot and then one year looking like a genius. And then you, you rinse and repeat. You spend another three years looking like an idiot and then another year looking like a genius. And that's at least that's historically how it has played out. Of course, no guarantees. I don't have a crystal ball about uh, what the next three years and one year will look like. Um, but I, th- I think it, it touches on this same idea of, no- of wanting to fit in. And I think this is something where most people... And this may, there may be actionable lessons for us as Bitcoin is also here. So I'll give you an example. I think most people... I think it's true to say this. I think most people would rather be wrong, but with the group, than correct and on their own. Bitcoiners tend to be that person who's willing to kind of buck the trend, be on their own, and hodl, and the long-term Bitcoiners have, have won out, right? Compared to, you know, uh, generally speaking. But that represents a bit of a challenge then. Is it that most people are just looking to whoever is high status in their society or in their group because it's all about fitting in. And maybe there's like an evolutionary reason, maybe thousands of years ago, if you didn't fit in with the tribe, you were out and that was basically a death sentence, right? If you didn't fit in with the tribe, you're screwed. You've got to like fend for yourself and you're probably going to die. So maybe there was like an evolutionary reason for that, but maybe now it's kind of maladaptive given our modern day world and our modern day you know capitalist or we wish it was more capitalist economy um but then here's the lesson maybe it's that most people unfortunately are going to learn the hard hard way and so maybe we have to focus our efforts on let's say i'm going to guess 15 to 20 percent right or you know someone like francis pauliot or michael goldstein might call them the remnant right like we have to focus our efforts on that 15 to 20 percent of the population who can be reasoned with who are the open-minded people who are not let's say the yuppie elite in the jesse you know croesus model right because the the yuppie elite people are in that 80 percent now they may be intelligent but they're in that 80% group of people who just want to fit in. They just want to fit in into elite circles, not into kind of the everyday circles because they want to be in the elite, uh, right? But I think that perhaps is our our task, our calling is to call out to and find those people in the 15 or 20%, let's say, roughly, and ideally make content that is appealing in to, to a broad audience, but you know, also to young generations. So that's that's how I'm seeing it now. I'm curious, what do you think? Yeah, I think you've absolutely nailed it. You know, the 80-20 rule, a Pareto principle, it's also touched on in the book because it's so powerful. It it transcends the psychological aspect of, you know, how humans behave, but then it you, you also see it popping up in finance all over the place. Um, Howard Marks wrote a really good book called Mastering the Cycle, or Mastering the Market Cycle, I think. And he just kind of really methodically goes into detail about all the signposts you see in a market cycle. And he mentions exactly what you just pointed out, is that in any um, market, and you see it most uh, clearly during times of bubbles, is uh, 80% of people are going to get fleeced. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, it's not that the 20% are making that happen. It's just that about 80% of people have that tendency to get sucked into things, go with the group, uh, and not really uh, think critically about what's actually fundamentally happening beneath, you know. So, um, yeah, you see that in Bitcoin as well. Um, There really are a very few number of people who are willing to be in that 20% bucket because, you know, as we talked about, it's it's a very lonely journey. But now we're, what, 14 years in, there's enough data 
and enough of a track record to look at this thing um, with, you know, very practical eyes and make a individual decision. Because when you're talking about preserving your own wealth um, or planning for your future, your family's future, that's a very unique uh, journey. And it's going to be a very unique uh, decision to make based on your particular circumstances, how old you are, what your goals are in the future. So, you know, if you're trying to fit in by making a very significant life-altering financial decision, I mean, that's just wrong to begin with. You know, it's a very personal decision. It should be treated that way. Uh, and I think a lot of Bitcoiners are just very analytical people. They're, they're looking for evidence to either confirm or reject certain theses. So maybe, you know, it's not that Bitcoiners are uh, special. It's just maybe the critical thinkers just become Bitcoiners by default. Um, is maybe how I see. It. Yeah. And I think another thing that's very important is to run the numbers, right? And this is also like a bit of a meme in Bitcoin circles. It um, Previously, people would talk about this idea of there's a command in Bitcoin, Bitcoin-CLI, get TX outset info, I think it's called. And uh, basically, this sums up the total number of Bitcoin. And I guess it's kind of the, the point or the lesson of it is that, hey, we can verify our supply. And I think a lot of people in the normal world who aren't in the Bitcoin world yet, they could benefit from running the numbers a lot more, right? Whether that is even with property, doing a, a rent versus buy calculation. Now, how many people would actually go and do that, right? Uh, or even if they do, maybe they, they bias, they tip the scales in the favor of buying a property because they really want to fit in, right? So maybe on their own running the numbers calculation, they build in, let's say, a very overly optimistic property appreciation rate. So they say, oh, I'm going to buy this property and let's say whatever the interest rate is, 5%, whatever, but I'm going to build in an assumption that property goes up 10% per year or something like that. And then if you build in these crazy assumptions, of course, it's going to look like, yeah, you should buy because property is going to go up 10% per year. But is it in real terms over the longer term? It might not be true. It might be going up in nominal terms, but not in real terms. And I think that is the important point um, and the importance of really running the numbers um, and not just naively extrapolating on the last, let's say, 10 years or 20 years, depending on which market you are in the world, because that is not likely to be representative of real returns going forward. It may be of nominal returns, but not of real returns is how I'm seeing it. What do you think? Yeah, and that speaks more to uh, this insidious, I guess, outcome of the current state of financial literacy is that the ability to do basic economic calculations like that has kind of been destroyed. Um, and that's not a criticism of an individual. That's like there's all these forces acting against the average person to make it overly confusing, unnecessarily complex. Um, you know, it, it, it's a tall order to ask the average person to sit down, make a comparison like that, without emotion, without confirmation bias, um, and understand all the complexity in both those decisions and kind of end up at, you know, a reasonable outcome. So, yeah, I mean, again, just going back to just simplify, just simplify things to the absolute bare necessity um, and then make your decision. Because like you said, you know, if we're talking real estate, yeah, there's all these extra costs or aspects that you don't consider, uh, interest rate risk. And what we're really talking about is uncertainty. You know, do you have certainty over particular aspects of this particular asset. And you just mentioned Bitcoin with supply. Yes, you do. And that's what a lot of uh, the draw is for people is Bitcoin is uncertainty reduction technology in a sense. So yeah, it's a, it's a crazy 
point in time. It really is. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point to hang it on there. And also, one other interesting point I think is interesting to discuss is the world of financial influences today, right? So there's all these finance influences, and if you look at the system to to the point you were saying, to, to the point you were making, there are a lot of people who have not done the work to teach themselves personal finance concepts, interest rates, accounting, finance, all these basic concepts. And so they're just looking at the junk food of social media. They're looking at some TikTok financial finance influencer type of person who is telling them about, you know, maybe credit card hacks or something like this, or maybe um, they're shilling some nonsense like masterworks, right? This you might've seen on YouTube, some of these finance influencers, every now and again, I check in on what they're saying and you look at what they're advertising and they're shilling like masterworks. They're saying, oh yeah, everyone go like, let's all invest in like fractional artwork or something like this. And, and, you know, even like well-known, like big influencers, you know, multi hundred thousand or millions of followers, influencers or subscribers um they'll be shilling this garbage like this and they'll be saying oh yeah um follow me for all these tips on you know whether it's stocks to buy or how to do real estate stuff but also here's this like masterworks whatever this art investment thing and it just seems like a recipe for disaster and unfortunately people are so poorly equipped to critically assess the claims that they are you know, just seeing every day when they're scrolling on TikTok and Instagram and all the rest of it. Yeah. <laughs> Again, uh, yeah, the, the comparison to junk food, I think is spot on. Because if there was a word for, say, perhaps being obese and comparing that into, you know, your financial health or economic understanding, the 80-20 rule would absolutely apply there. And again, it's just, are you surprised given the incentives of the fiat when you look at what algorithms reward in terms of the attention economy you look at the monetization um i guess setup of how the internet is currently structured uh it 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 makes perfect sense when you understand the incentives but it's a recipe for disaster it's it's only going to make people poorer sicker more stressed um and unfortunately that's how the fiat system is kind of designed so yeah sad to say um so i think the important concept and we've been touching on this idea throughout our chat today is the intransigent minority right and i think now of course Nas- we we have our we, you know i think we all have our criticisms of nasim taleb but i think the concept the intransigent minority is an interesting one do you want to explain how you see that and uh, perhaps explain the relevance of that for us as bitcoiners yeah it's it's really a, a nod to the idea of a tipping point that it only takes a very small group of very um i guess uh headstrong individuals to either opt out of a system or kick up a fuss. Um, But in a constructive way, you kind of have to either show the path of an alternative or offer an alternate system. Um, It's not just about complaining. You have to actually act on that. Uh, You have such a small critical threshold to force a system change. I think most people think in, you know, democracy terms of, oh, until 51% of people do something, it's not going to happen or we're not going to change. But The truth is that in any system where individuals are free to choose and, you know, the financial system and Bitcoin world is a perfect example because most everyone starts in system A, which is the fiat monetary system um, in our current timeline. In the future, that won't be the case, but everyone begins in system A. And then we're seeing enough people or a certain percentage of the population opt out in B. And the question is always, at what point does everything kind of flip? And do we move into hyper-Bitcoinization, whatever you want to call it? 
And I, again, also don't have a crystal ball. I have no idea what current level of adoption we're at. It's very difficult to, you can make estimations, but to have any precision is quite difficult. Um, but the number is much lower than most people understand. It only takes, you know, uh, I think the example used in Taleb's book is maybe, I think it's 4%, 2 to 4%, very, very small number to kind of really force a change. And that, that doesn't just happen because that group overruns everyone else. It's, it's also in the evidence that results from that. If, if I leave, if I stop consuming junk food and all of a sudden I'm starting to become, uh, healthier, stronger, my immune system fares better and when, you know, under attack, uh, people will see that from the current system and they'll then start to reconsider their choice. Uh, so, you know, I don't like to use the word influencer, but you almost become an influencer in your community and you demonstrate behavior and results that are admirable, that are people desire. And that's how you kind of, you know, get a system to change. And I know people maybe don't, especially Bitcoiners in terms of how they feel about Taleb, but let me just tell you an idea that completely helped me on this rabbit hole journey. And that's this concept of separating um, the person from their ideas. So if someone you fundamentally dislike, uh, thinks an idiot, uh, and they present uh, an idea, a concept, uh, can you look at that independent of them? Can you put aside your emotions for a second and just assess what they've put forward, that idea? Because in many cases, the most valuable things that will help you are going to come from people you dislike. So yeah, learn to make that that distinction. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you there. I think the intransigent minority is pretty much something that we are as Bitcoin is trying to grow that. That's definitely part of the thesis with Swan. Corey's written about that as well. And I think growing that group of people who are trying to use Bitcoin as their savings or ideally be a Bitcoin native, earn Bitcoin and spend Bitcoin. I think that's the ideal case though. You know, I would encourage people to do that, but I'm not trying to shame hodlers for not spending or whatever. You know, if you're hodling, you're still helping as far as I'm concerned. And if we could grow that base of hodlers and stackers, I think that is the main metrics that we that we could grow. If we could grow that number, so if people can read your book and, uh, you know, teach each other, teach their family, teach their friends, you know, influence the people close to your life, right? Not in like the cheesy kind of oh, influencer way, but actually in the real genuine person-to-person family or fr- a close friend influence way. I think we'd be making a lot of progress in that way. So let's finish it up there. Anil, uh, where can people find you online? Where can they find your book? Uh, so you can find the book on Amazon or if you prefer to pay in sats, you can find it through uh, Consensus Network through their online shop. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. And in my bio, there is a link to a site where you can get pretty much all of my educational materials for free. They're in, it's available in multiple languages because Bitcoiners are awesome and they've helped me translate those works into a whole range of different different languages. Uh, and uh, also on Nostra. So we'll see uh, how the future plays out for that. But open protocols for the win usually seems to be pretty a pretty uh, a good view to, to hold. Um, Stefan, I also just want to say thank you for... Um, uh, all the incredible content you've put out over the years. I've learned a huge amount from from just having you ask thoughtful questions to really intelligent people um, and being a fly on the wall in that situation helped me a lot. And, you know, I think having thoughtful conversations in public is also helpful. Uh, you know, Twitter is kind of a public forum in that sense. And people sometimes confuse uh, arguing on Twitter for a waste of time, but you also have to take into account who's who's viewing this and how might their thinking be influenced by this so uh yeah thanks for having me it's been a pleasure
Hey, thank you. I appreciate uh, the kind words. And uh, listeners, make sure you check the show notes, stefanlevera.com. You can find all of Anil's stuff there. Thanks, Anil, for joining me. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed the show. Let me know what you think. And of course, share the show with your family and friends. See you in the Citadels.